So Revelation 21, let us hear the word of the Lord. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of, the, out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and the names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof an hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man that is of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, and the fourth an emerald, and the fifth sardonyx, and the sixth sardius, and the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, and the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was one of pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, 
but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. May God bless this word to us. And with that great uh, picture of glory to come, let us turn to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 16. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of uh, one, and of him uh, as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they had come out, came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, in heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Amen. May God bless this precious word to us. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we come to such heavenly glories in the word, promises given, O God, that we are to embrace by faith, to be assured of them and persuaded of them. And we ask in the preaching of the word that the minister would be able by the Spirit's power only to persuade and enable the people of God to embrace these precious promises, that they would not be mindful of the country that they have left, but instead be mindful of the city prepared by God, and that their walk would be heavenly, forsaking all the enemies of their soul, and instead embracing Christ wholly. Put into our hearts eternity, Lord, that we may desire what God has prepared for us who believe. And for those who don't believe, may this sight of heaven in the scripture be uh, to them an inducement to flee to Christ. Only thou canst do these things. So do these things, Lord, we pray. And that you would help me, who am less than the least of all saints, preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. We ask this for his glory and in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, if yours is saving faith, you are to long for and desire heaven. You heard in Hebrews eleven sixteen, you are to desire a better country that is an heavenly. God has prepared a better country for you, believer, a place that he calls a country that he calls heaven. And Christians who know that they are headed there solely because of the work of Jesus Christ are like Abraham. Day by day, in this world that is our pilgrimage, we walk with our eye set on the promise of heaven. We walk with our eyes fixed on that place where God's glory dwells and where Jesus Christ is enthroned. The Holy Spirit Really, his work is as he proceeds from father and son is to draw our affections heavenward and out of the world 
the more that we meditate on heaven. And we become less and less mindful of this present world, this country that we are called to leave and abandon, this present world. And we embrace our identity that we are pilgrims on our way to a better country, which is truly our home. We find ourselves loving Christ all the more and hating sin, the world, and the devil. And we become prepared for eternity. We endure the trials and afflictions of this world joyfully, cheerfully, because this world is not our home and our dwelling place, but we have a home with God in heaven, and we recognize that. You may know Christopher Love, who was a 17th century Presbyterian. He wrote a wonderful book on heaven and hell. Uh, He opposed Cromwell for uh, Cromwell executing King Charles I, as many of the Covenanters did. And he himself, uh, Christopher Love, was beheaded because of it. But it was his meditation on heaven that sustained him throughout his trials and afflictions. And before his head left his body, he told the sheriff in charge, Sir, I bless my God, for my heart is in heaven and I am well. This is what is found in the walk of a Christian whose heart is in heaven and not in this present world. Separate my head from my body, fine, but my affection is in heaven and all you do is you send me to heaven sooner. And we rejoice in that. This is why those on the deathbed who have meditated long on heaven say, "Uh, is it time yet, Lord? Can I be with you now? Rather than clinging bitterly to this present world. When your heart is with Christ in heaven, you will be well, no matter the trial. But you must first know heaven as Reverend Love knew heaven from the Bible. Not society's vain conception of heaven, which is vapid and shallow and cannot sustain you. But you must know the place that is also called glory, full of the glory of God. And as we embark on this task of knowing heaven, beloved, I want to say that heaven is so glorious and so wondrous. My soul and shallow hope in this sermon is just to give you a foretaste of it. That you would desire it and you would live as a a pilgrim on the way to heaven and you would dive into the word yourself to discover the glories that await those who are in Christ. So with that then, our theme is desire the glory of heaven. Desire the glory of heaven. And we have three headings tonight found on your bulletin. Heaven's glory, heaven's comfort, and heaven's use. First, heaven's glory. What you have in Revelation 21 is a vision of the future state. After the millennial glory of Revelation 20, we find a new heaven and a new earth as Christ consummates all things, where former things are no more. And so this is a great snapshot of our eternal abode. Christ giving us this heavenly vision that we would keep our eyes fixed upon it. And if you've been in the prayer meetings, you have seen this constant theme and the revelation, which is what? Overcome. Because this is where you were headed. Overcome. Endure this world and run towards the heavenly country. But before we dive into that, and I will have to say, we're not exegeting Revelation 21 verse by verse, but drawing out of it. Let's first consider, though, a simple definition of what heaven is. And this is a simple definition, and I think we can hang off of it. But heaven is 
paradise, the holy home God prepared to dwell with his people forever. Heaven is paradise, the holy home that God has prepared to dwell with his people, that is his saints, his redeemed forever, those redeemed in Christ. A simple definition, not all-encompassing, but one to begin with. And the first thing that you note then is heaven is a place that God has purposely created and has prepared. It is a part of the creation. It did not always exist. God is the only thing that ever always existed. Hebrews 11 says, and you you hear this, God has prepared a place. Heaven is a prepared place. You remember this, boys and girls. God has no need for a dwelling place. He is self-sufficient. If he needed a dwelling place, something is over God. But God is self-sufficient. He cannot be contained by heaven. You remember Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8.27. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. He created heaven, though, as a place where he might dwell with you, believer, with his saints, for we are creatures and we need a place to dwell. And three times God's word calls heaven paradise. Luke 23, 43, which will be our communion text. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, he would be with him in paradise. Second Corinthians 12, 4, the apostle Paul speaks of being caught up in paradise. In Revelation 2, verse 7, it is called the paradise of God. Why is it called paradise? I think we need to understand that lest we have a conception of paradise that is like Mohammed's, a carnal place with carnal pleasures and carnal delights. No, that's not paradise. In heaven, though, God says there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in his presence. And that pleasure is chiefly mental and spiritual pleasure and joy, not carnal. It is a place, and you think of it this way, a place with a peace that surpasses all understanding. Peace with God and peace with neighbor. A peace that flows out of God, where God and you are set in a perfect relationship for all of eternity. All the enmity is gone. You are glorified, and we'll get to that in a bit. And there is no more enmity. There is no more chastening as we considered it even for the believer this morning. It is just peace with God, love from God. Heaven is that kind of paradise. God at the center. And the beautiful thing is, unlike Eden, it can never be lost. And it is eternal. God created paradise, this heaven, to bless also, you must realize, both our soul and our body. Uh, Some people have this erroneous notion that heaven is this immaterial, a place that is for purely the immaterial. But heaven is not only for immaterial beings like God and the holy angels. It is also for those who have bodies. And children, the best way that you can know this is your Savior, Jesus Christ, is in heaven right now. And he has a glorified body, doesn't he? He has a spiritual body. And we, right, he has a human body. We will have one like his in the general resurrection. One fit for heaven. And so heaven is not just a place for the immaterial, but also the physical. And we can get that wrong. Before the resurrection, we who die in in Christ, and we read that in Revelation chapter 6, didn't we? We who die in Christ, our souls 
will go to heaven, yet we will await the redemption of our body. But heaven, after the resurrection, will become the place of our home of both uh, soul and body, as they will be united again. And this is the glory of heaven too, which is that both your body and your soul will be comforted and consoled forever. God has made you a whole person, soul, and body, and all of your, your being will be comforted in the presence of God. Now, as we consider heaven and, and as paradise and its glories, and I'm getting ahead of myself, I believe, we must begin with the consideration of God. Too few do. Often when men speak of heaven, you would think almost it's a place devoid of God. As though God's not there, you think of, oh, okay, I'll, I'll be reunited with loved ones that I have lost, and, and maybe if they died in Christ. And then you think about pleasures and, and carnal delights, it seems. But where is God? You call it happiness, but all it is is a place that's a little nicer than this world. That seems to be most of men's conception of heaven. But God is nowhere to be found. That's not heaven, then. If God is not to be found, true happiness and felicity is found only in God. Without God, heaven is not heaven. Without God, it's just a better version of this life, perhaps, which is still wretched. Our sin is to forget that the greatest blessing of paradise is to have a perfect fruition of God. That is paradise to the believer. That is paradise to the redeemed. It is the presence of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost that makes heaven paradise. We sing of this truth in Psalm 1611. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. It is his presence that brings fullness of joy. That's it. And it's at his right hand that there are pleasures forevermore. This is paradise to the Christian. Joy in the presence of God. God is the fountainhead of heaven's every blessing. All the blessings you seek of love, laughter, joy, sinlessness, fellowship and feasting with Christ, marital bliss, even with Jesus, every comfort of heaven flows out of the gracious presence of God therein. We read in verse 3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. This is your home, believer. Not DFW, not the United States of America, not planet Earth. This is not home. That is home. Verse 3, This is a temporary lodging. We talked about that in our sermon on spiritual conference. Why would we, who are passing through this world, uh, uh, fill our affections and our thoughts with this world when we are headed to glory, when we are headed to a heavenly place, when we have a home in the heavens above? That God will dwell with you, believer, is heaven's great glory, and you should have that as your great meditation. Do you ever think on that? that I will dwell with God. I think this is how worldly our our lives are where this doesn't capture our heart. That I will dwell with God. That makes heaven paradise. 
And you found tokens of heaven's aim or God's aim in heaven throughout the scripture, haven't you? Right? God dwelt in a tabernacle amidst Israel in the journey to Canaan, signifying that one day the dwelling place of God will be with man. He erected a temple that he may dwell in our midst. But greatest of all children, do you remember John 1.14, where the word was made flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. That is Jesus, that is God in the flesh. He, he has, God has, and this is a profound mystery, isn't it? That God has a desire to dwell with us, his people. If you knew who you are and you knew who God was, you would bless the Lord every day that he would desire in any sense take pleasure in us. But the Son of God came in the flesh that God would dwell among us. When you look at the work of the Son of God, you need to see heaven as his aim. That he would draw you not to save you out of hell. That is far too low a view of what he has done. But he has come to bring you to dwell with God in heaven, which only he could do, that man might dwell with God. And it's the very purpose, as you are aware of the covenant of grace. Verse 3. They shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. You have seen the covenant of grace echo throughout the scripture, as far back as Genesis 17, the promise given to Abraham in these similar words, renewed in places like Jeremiah 23, the new covenant, that we would be God's people and God himself would be our God. And so when you think of the covenant of grace itself, you must see the promise of heaven there. Adam in the first covenant, lost the first paradise. But the last Adam, Christ, wins for us the true paradise in the covenant of grace. And that's how you see these two covenants, paradise lost, paradise earned by Christ. So when you think of it as it unfolds in Scripture, don't think ever again of the covenant as merely snatching you out of hell. See something far more glorious it is Jesus sending me to dwell with God. That God would own me as his own. And God will be mine in heaven forever. Uh, reminded of what we just sang, brethren. This is the great possession of heaven in Psalm 16, verse 5. God is of mine inheritance and cup the portion. Who is your inheritance in heaven? It is God. It is God himself, brethren. And let us never forget that. And let us never lose sight of it. Augustine said, Thy God will be wholly thine. He, an entire whole, will possess you entirely whole. You will have the whole and the other the whole, because thou and he are one. This is the, the panting and the fainting of the Christian to think on these things. That God will be mine and I will be his. My beloved is mine and I am his. The refrain of the Song of Solomon. To possess God is the Christian's joy. For who is God to you? Right When you look on God will be my inheritance, he will be my portion, you might have, and you probably do, as I have at many times, too low a view of that. Who is God? God is far better than all the riches of the earth, isn't he? He is far better than the whole entire universe. And yet men would be thrilled if they could be crowned emperor of the universe. And yet you will have God who is the most exquisite and perfect being. 
to gaze upon God for eternity and inquire with Him ought to be our chief meditation of heaven. And if you knew God from the Word of God, and you would see Him by eyes of faith, this one being that is beautiful, that is holy, that is perfect, that is pure, that is love, that has all the treasures of knowledge hidden in Him, we would desire having Him. We would desire the the very thought that God is my portion forever. Your happiness, mark this well, and maybe this is the day in which you need to mark this in your heart, your happiness will be found in having full and entire access to God and His beauty. And because we don't know who God is, that doesn't uh, pluck the heartstring, does it? And it doesn't cause us to praise as in Psalm 16. Consider the 27th Psalm's fourth verse and how it can only be fulfilled fully in heaven. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. What? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold what? The beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That is the heart of the Christian, that he may or she may spend the entirety of their life inquiring and pondering the Lord, looking upon his beauty. And that is why eternity is too short a time with God. If you knew who God is, you will never tire of him, his perfections, his majesty, his glory, his knowledge, his love. All of it is the beauty of heaven. We would pant as those in Hebrews 11 and David in the 27th Psalm for any opportunity to be in the house of God for eternity, intimate and full access to God. You know, now you might say, but I tire of God. I go to the word and I get tired. I'm in the service and I get tired. That's not God's fault. That's your fault. And that's my fault. That's our flesh being wearied by God. But when we are translated to glory, hallelujah, there is no more flesh to get in the way. And we will enjoy God. This is man's chief end, to glorify God and to what? Enjoy him forever. You will enjoy God being transformed and never weary of him. And so believer, your heart ought to be stirred up to think of heaven in this relation to God. God as the centerpiece of heaven and never being wearied in him, but ever delighting in him. And I will just say no other blessing in heaven compares We could really just end the sermon here. Why does no other blessing compare to the child of God? Think about those that have been great men of God of old. Not perfect men by any means, but the heart's desire of the men of old. We have heard of David in Psalm 27. What about Moses and Philip? Is your heart like them? There's What did Moses say of God? What was his desire for God? Show me thy glory. Show me thy glory. And what was Philip's desire to Jesus? Show me the Father. Show us the Father. Do you see this? Your interest as a believer ought to be God himself, not streets paved with gold and carnal delights. We'll have to cover that in another sermon, what they signify. But in God himself, that's how you know you are fit for heaven is your interest in God himself and nothing else. 
And for those of you who have Moses' heart to cry out, show me thy glory, heaven was designed for you. Praise God for that. And no one else really. You know, the unbeliever says, well, it's terribly unfair, I can't go to heaven. Really, they would not enjoy heaven one iota if they don't enjoy God here. How could they stand being in the presence of a holy God that they despise? They won't flee to him now. Why will they flee in heaven to him? They won't. Heaven is the place where God's presence is manifest in a special way, and we need to consider that. We know that God is present everywhere, even as he is present in hell, as we heard last time. But for those in heaven, it is his glory that Moses sought and his comfortable presence that is given to them there. You see that in verse 23. The glory of God did lighten it. In hell, the unbeliever has the presence of God, but his wrath, his wrathful presence is what they have. But in heaven, it is his glorious and radiant presence of God that you will have. That is why we call heaven glory. Believers, we say we are headed to glory because we are headed to where the glorious presence of God dwells. Psalm seventy-three, twenty-four: Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, the word of God, and afterward, what? Receive me to glory. If you are in the kingdom of God, then, by faith in Jesus Christ, this kingdom is going to blossom And it's going to flower into its fullness into what is called the kingdom of glory. And what you have now, we praise God, we can appreciate and and have a sense of the majesty and glory of God through the word of God and by the spirit of God. But we will have that in its fullness one day. And if you are in the kingdom by faith in Jesus, you are headed here to taste a fullness of God's glory. But that takes us to a consideration of Jesus Christ in heaven. Because the glory of God is always mediated to us by Jesus Christ, the God-man. That is how you can ever have a fruition of God's glory. For the glory of God did lighten it, and what do we read? And the Lamb is the light thereof, speaking of Jesus. You know, as it was in the transfiguration, we remember that recently in Luke's gospel, the glory of God shines through the person of Christ. Right? 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus, Jesus mediates the glory of God in a way that creatures can have the blessing and fruition of God. And on this, and because time is short today, I have preached on the beatific vision of God from Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And you can review that sermon on Sermon Audio to know the blessed sight of God, that beatific vision of God that is mediated through Christ, the mediator that transforms us and gives us this fruition of God. It is that blessed vision of God in heaven through Christ that changes you and blesses you eternally and is a great portion of the glory of heaven, the beatific vision. But for today, trusting most of you have heard that, time constrains me to consider other aspects of Christ in heaven. Because God in Jesus Christ is really the all in all of heaven for the believer. We say to God incarnate, right, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, that I can embrace God 
in a way that is suited for my constitution as a creature. Consider how Paul spoke of Christ in relation to heaven. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. It's in, it, glory, this is Colossians 3, 4, glory is a place that Paul has fixated in Jesus. Then in Philippians 1, 23, for I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with whom? Christ, which is far better. For the believer then, it is not only God in his divine essence they long for, but the Son of God as the God-man that they long for in heaven, because they know without Christ they can have no fruition of the Almighty. And so Christ, their love, mediates God to them. And when the believer thinks on heaven, they say to Christ, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And that's the thinking of Paul, isn't it? Desire and be with Christ. Christ my life that I will appear with in glory. Even though heaven, as we know, is filled with an innumerable saints and the holy angels, in comparison to having God in Christ, we say, Whom have I in heaven but thee? Isn't that what that verse means? That even though there is blessedness, none in heaven compares to Christ. It is really, and this is not a pun, immaterial what else is in heaven to the believer. I remember uh, this anecdote, and I will quote it as a paraphrase of you know, the little girl on her deathbed with faith in Christ who told those attending to her something like, I am going to be in heaven with Jesus now. And they asked the little girl, well, what if Jesus leaves heaven? And she said, I will follow him because he is heaven. And that is what the believer believes because without Jesus, there is no heaven. And he is truly our heaven, as Rutherford and other better men have said. And through Jesus, we will be in awe of God forever, seeing his glory and his majesty You know, the weight and the glory of heaven will be immense. It would really take our breath away. You cannot bear the weight of it today. That's how glorious heaven is. You remember in 2 Corinthians 12, how the Apostle Paul was literally without words to describe what he experienced in the third heaven, which is heaven that we are speaking of. It's inexpressible through mere words, what God has prepared for us in heaven, to see his glory, to behold the Almighty, and to be in awe and wonder of the one perfect being forever through Jesus Christ. And the glory of God, which of course glory means weight, right, children? The glory of God will also shine forth through the love of God for us in Christ. You know, God is love. This is a basic truth of the scripture and heaven. And I always was taken by Jonathan Edwards's work on heaven. He called it a world of love, a world of love, an eternal and everlasting world of love. You know, if hell's torments are eternal and we shuddered at that a few weeks ago, there's no escape, right? There's no escape whatsoever. It's bolted as it were by the almighty. What is wonderful about heaven is the opposite. There is no escaping. There is no escape from the love of God in Jesus Christ in heaven. There's not a place that you can hide from it. It suffuses the place and it is directed towards his people and it is for all eternity. Unlike Eden, where it was lost, 
Heaven will never be lost because the mediator is there. The God-man is there and ensures that none of the saints will be lost. And you will have love pouring out of the Savior's heart and the love of God mediated through humanity that we might feel and know the love of God through human flesh as John did at the Lord's Supper, uh, leaning on the bosom of Christ. Heaven as a world of love. In 1 Corinthians 13, this is a key insight as to what remains in heaven. And now, speaking of now, abideth faith, hope, charity, that is love, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. It is charity, it is love that abides forever. Faith and hope that you need to possess now as graces from God, they will fade away and pass away. Why do you need faith when you can see him in the beatific vision? Why do you need hope when you possess heaven? What remains is love. You will love God forever, perfectly, without your flesh getting in the way, and you will enjoy and bask in his love. Whatever love you have experienced in this world, believer, it is absolutely rags compared to the love that God will bestow upon you for eternity. And you will be enveloped with a love that what does the love of Christ, what is it said to be in the scriptures? Ephesians 3.19, you will know in heaven the love of Christ, which what? Passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. A fullness of God's love that overflows and overflows your soul, such that your soul cannot constrain it. This is the happiness of heaven, believer. You know, when you look at the attributes or perfections of God, when you have the love of God bound then to the infinity of God, these two attributes, what do you then have? The love of God which passeth knowledge. An infinite love that you will bask in forever. This is heaven. And you will marvel in God's love because your knowledge of it will grow and grow and never end. Again, Edwards called it a world of love. And the, the, the wonderful thing is you will see how God has loved you. You will know that in your creation and how you were created particularly, he has loved you. You will know in every providence that you have gone through, every trial, every affliction, all of that was out of a hand of love, even as we consider chastening this day. And you have yourself perhaps been bitter sometimes at the Almighty. Call me Mara. And yet, you will find that every affliction, every chastening was out of love for your good. And you will start to comprehend what you have never really fully comprehend, which is the love of God, which we can only taste that sent Jesus Christ into the world to save you, a sinner. And you will know the love of God that beat on the cross, that compelled the Savior to hang there and not call down a legion of angels that he would love you to the end. Heaven is this world of love. And as love is centered in Jesus, the God-man, you find him here as your heavenly bridegroom. In the consummation to come, the church is as a bride prepared for her husband. Wed to him forever and ever. That's in verse 2. And so you will see the marriage covenant to love you forever, believer, and you will know he will never renege on it. What is, you know, in this life, sad to say, Christians get divorced. 
even though God has said, I hate divorce. But you will bless God for that truth for eternity because he will never leave you or forsake you. He will never abandon you. He will keep his commitment to you forever. You are his forever in heaven. And if you've had a marriage that has gone south, see the love of God in Christ who will never, ever leave you. And so if heaven is our eternal home, what a joy it is to know it is a marital home, a marital home with Jesus. You know, when a man is engaged to a woman, it is often the practice that during the engagement, he goes to purchase a home where they may dwell together as husband and wife. And right now, the bridegroom has done that. He's doing that, I should say. He has gone to prepare a home in heaven, hasn't he? John 14, let not your heart be troubled. Oh, that we would take that word. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. What does he do? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, what is the promise? I will come again and receive you where? Unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. This is a home that we have with Christ, heaven. You cannot have heaven without Jesus. And remember the, the terror of hell, right? Where we hear it is like the pit that never, the sinking never ends. That for all eternity, it's like your heart will be caught in your throat and you'll be sinking and sinking and sinking with no place to land. What does that signify? No rest. And yet in heaven, you have the opposite. You have a home. You have a home and you will have rest with Jesus forever. Hebrews 4.9 promises you this. There remaineth a rest for the people of God. And that rest in its fullness is heaven. And you will worship God in heaven with all the saints. Revelation 7.5 says, Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him or worship him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. As you know, the temple, and this is very interesting you think of the word house, the temple and the church are called what? The house of God. The house of God. What does that teach us? If we are to dwell with God in his house, we must worship God. Which is what you will do in heaven for all eternity, believer. Now, sad to say, I am certain that for some of you that sounds terribly dreadful. Terribly dreadful. And you think that is going to make eternity a bore and a chore. But that's a sinful thought. That is your flesh again, not your regenerated heart speaking. Not only is the worship of God owed to him, but you ought to enjoy it. If you are to enjoy heaven, you are to enjoy worship now. Because something else remarkable happens in the worship of God. Think on this. You know the doctrine of worship. Many of you do anyhow. What does God do in acts of worship? He communicates to us, doesn't he? He communicates not just words and ideas, but he communicates himself. He communicates himself. For instance, are we not worshiping God through the preaching of the word? And what is God doing? Is he not communicating something of glory, something of himself? Something for your heart to grab a hold of. Is he not illuminating us? Is he not teaching us? Is he not giving himself to us in Christ? Is his light not penetrating us if we are in the spirit? And as we are illuminated in the worship of God, it fuels further worship. 
And so you find this wonderful, wonderful reaction in heaven. You worship God. He gives us more of Himself. We worship Him and praise Him all the more and receive more of God. This never-ending cycle of enjoyment of the worship of God, the being who is excellent and worthy of praise. And as we see more and more of His excellence and His beauty and the knowledge of the Lord illuminates us, we just worship all the more. Eternity a bore in worship? Hardly. This is phenomenal stuff, being in awe of God as we worship God. The problem is we have no sense of the awe we ought to have for God. If we did, we wouldn't be in awe so much of the grandest galaxies, right? They take our breath away. We say, look how many millions of stars there are. And we're not in awe of the Creator. It won't be that way in heaven. So the glory of God and being with Christ are the best parts of heaven. But we have other great comforts in heaven too as God is gracious. And we'll consider that in our second heading, Heaven's Comfort. And we will consider this in the third heading a bit briefer. I said this will be a long sermon. And you can see that that is certainly the case. Now you recall in Luke 16.26 from our sermon on hell that the rich man was tormented in hell. But Abraham said, what of uh, Lazarus? He is now comforted. And this sums up heaven versus hell. Hell is torment, heaven is comfort. You'll note in the Bible that whatever hell is, heaven is its opposite and vice versa. And so if in hell and our hearts were gripped by the, the, the terror of it, if body and soul are tormented in hell, oh brethren, how joyful it is to know that in heaven, both body and soul are comforted and consoled by God. You know, the primary comfort is to know that you are God's, as we considered earlier. But being God's then, verse 4 gives you a sense of the comfort he will give us. And is this not comfort? And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Tears, pain, life under the curse, all gone. All gone. As far as east is from west, all gone. And not only are they all gone, but God himself, who is called the God of all comfort, will comfort you and console you himself through Jesus. God, what a thing it is that we ourselves are responsible primarily for these tears. And God will wipe them away himself. Christ will say, weep no more. The night of sorrows is past, my beloved. All is now light and love to you. And as we meditate on that, we can begin with one of heaven's greatest comforts, and that is in relation to sin. Heaven is a place where your own sin will be remembered no more. This is 180 degrees reversed from hell, where we read that our conscience is like the worm that never dies, constantly tormenting you of your sin, constantly reminding you, yes, you deserve hell, and it's your own conscience that will eat at you forever. Saying, as we heard this morning, if you had just fled to Jesus, you would not be here. You fool. And it will never end. The worm is your own accuser. But in heaven, we great sinners will rejoice in this. It is so different. He says, the former things are passed away. They are remembered no more. There is no more sorrow. He says in Hebrews ten seventeen, their sins and iniquities will I what? Remember no more. 
Your former sins will never plague you. Christ has paid for them all. And God said, I will remember them no more. And he utterly releases you from them all. Another comfort for the pilgrim going to heaven is in heaven there is no more war. Now, I don't mean that nations are no longer fighting, though that is true. What the Bible means is there is no more war from our great three enemies. The world, our own indwelling sin in the flesh, and the devil. You fight this war, I trust you do. That war is ended in heaven. There is no more war. It is peace that surpasses all knowledge and understanding. Verse 25 signifies this quite picturesquely. And the gates of it, meaning heaven, shall not be shut at all by day, for there is, there shall be no night there. That's a glorious thought, isn't it? The gates of heaven are wide open. That doesn't mean that people can come in who are not there in Christ. No, but what it means when it says there's no night there is that it is a world of peace. And its gates are so wide open because no evil can enter into it. Not your evil, not the world, and certainly not the devil who is roasting in hell. That means what? Your own evil is gone. All of your own evil is gone. You are glorified in heaven. All the sin you wrestle with, the lust and the madness you contend against, totally removed from you there. The devil is in hell. He cannot torment you. And so is the world system. And you think on this. When you go to heaven, the day you do, if you're in Christ, for the very first time, your mind is clear. Your heart is pure. Your affections chaste and perfect, free from any touch of sin. Your entire thought will be on the glory of God, loving him and loving neighbor. And you will be in the number of, isn't this a remarkable number? The spirits of just men made perfect. Hebrews 12, 13, 23. What a comfort that is to you who fight the good fight of faith now. I will be made perfect. That's the joy of the Christian. You know how much of our own sorrow, our own tears comes from our own sin, beloved. We'll be made perfect in holiness. And here it is again. Your standing in heaven can never be lost, unlike in Eden. This is the glory of this second paradise. Heaven is secure forever. What are the words of 1 Thessalonians 4.17? We shall ever be with the Lord. There is no fall coming. Christ ensures it. But there is more comfort to be found. Our bodies will never face grief and afflictions. Instead, the picture of heaven is one of complete healing, of feasting, no more tears, no more pain. The rich man was tormented in hell and wanted a drop of water for his tongue, and he couldn't have it. It was denied him. But those in heaven have every comfort. They will take that crystal water of life that flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb freely, signifying the Spirit in the next chapter, Revelation 20, um, uh, 22. They will eat of the tree of life for healing. And if your body is broken and racked with pain, at the resurrection, as your body enters heaven, you will leap for joy. No more pain at all in your body. If you have dementia in this life, when you are in heaven, you will think clearly. These are parts of the comforts of heaven. And if hell is lonely like solitary uh, confinement, outer darkness, heaven is light and joy, a place that is full of fellowship. Remember, hell is like solitary. 
but heaven is full of an innumerable number of saints and angels, and of course with God. And we find that what is the constitution of heaven? The greatest commandments, love to God and love to neighbor. And you will never chafe at the commandments of God again, because you will see that Jesus was right when he said they are of love. And you'll find that there are no broken relationships in heaven and never will be. You have broken relationships with uh, saints on the earth. I understand that. We're called to reconcile these things. And maybe a great aid to our reconciliation is to remember that one day is coming where there is no schism. Where we will be totally reconciled to brother and sister. No party factions, no denominations. No one in glory says, I am of Apollos or I am of Cephas. All the hurts and pains we have caused one another that you find hard to forgive, totally erased. And you will love one another purely. So it seems far too little, far too trite to say that heaven is a blessed place, isn't it? When all of this awaits the believer, there is a fullness of joy there. The the most joyous occasion in your life today, whatever you have had, the greatest of joys, whether weddings, or baptisms, or childbirth, none of it compares to what awaits you in heaven. There is never fullness of joy here. There is joy, but there is never fullness of joy, but there is in heaven, so much so that you might be tempted to think, I cannot stand it, and you would if Jesus didn't mediate for you. Well, with a longing for heaven, let us consider our last heading, which is how to use it. Friends, you have seen there's no better place. And just as the mind shatters to consider the torments of hell, so is the mind overawed to really, and I mean truly, think on heaven. If the Holy Spirit has given you a hunger and longing for it, I want to draw out five brief uses for knowing its doctrine. The first use, and you cannot get past it, is you must go there. You must go there. Not everyone does. You know, so many funerals, we send everybody to heaven. And yet, what does verse 27 say? There shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. In fact, in the middle here of this chapter, you find hell prominently set as a contrast. And unbelief is one of those sins that sends you to hell. And so everyone is born a citizen of hell your birthright as it is in Adam. To become a citizen of heaven, you must be naturalized, so to speak. I'm a naturalized citizen of the United States. And he says, you must have your name found in the Lamb's Book of Life. Can you earn it? No. It is the gift of God, freely uh, given to you. He says in verse 6, this is your invitation, I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. You want heaven Take it now. Take it now, friend. Take it before you die. After that, you are shut into hell if you're outside of Christ. But you take Christ freely. He doesn't ask anything but for your uh, faith and to give up your sin. And he will help you in that. He is the only way to heaven. You know, when Thomas asked Jesus how we might go to be with him, 
uh, in heaven. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, we often divorce the context here, but we're speaking about going with Christ to heaven. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You want heaven, you don't want hell, you must have Christ. He is heaven's route. Because he is, after all, heaven to us. And so, of course, you go through him to get to heaven. And if you believe in Christ, here's the glory. You are assured that glory, that heaven, the world of love is yours. What does Colossians 1.27 say? To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you have Christ, you have the hope of glory. And that hope will go away when you're in glory because you will have it. But for now abides faith, hope, and love. Surely you can go home if you're in Christ saying hallelujah to that, can't you? You know, when you die in Christ, you will immediately be in heaven with him. He said to the thief on the cross, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Second use. Don't live for this world, Christian. This is not your home. Your citizenship, your conversation is in heaven. You are to put away worldliness. You are to put away carnal living. You are to put away amusements and pleasures of this world and exchange them for everlasting joys. When you understand the joy that uh, abides in heaven, you will set your treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot get at them. Yes, you can uh, um, enjoy a Compton portion of the good things in your, uh, of life, but your enjoyment of them is way subservient to enjoying Christ. Why live for the things of this world? Verse 1 says, they will all pass away. These are former things. And Hebrews 11 says, you are to seek a better, that is a heavenly country. That means you're going to give up a lot in this world to walk as a pilgrim towards heaven, which is a better place. Be a pilgrim. It is hard to divorce yourself from the world, but you are called to because a love for the world is enmity with God after all. So much time we waste on things that will pass away. You will not enjoy this world too much if your affections are set heavenward. Your priority, believer, is the kingdom of heaven. You're not to look like the world. And it's said in Hebrews 11 that for those with faith in the promise looking for a heavenly country, what is said of the world? These are whom the world is not worthy of. You are not worthy of the world, Christian. Why do you love it so? The world is not worthy of you. Live like the pilgrims in Hebrews 11. Be heavenly minded. Store up your treasure in heaven. What does Colossians 3 say? Set your affection where? On things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead. You're dead to the world. You're dead to sin. Where's your life? Hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Set your affection on Christ in heaven. Keep your focus on him. Is he here bodily? No, he's in heaven. Keep your attention there on him. You say you love Jesus. The Bible says, fine, love where he dwells and love his heavenly ways. 
So by faith, observe and enjoy his ordinances. Uh, Enjoy your Lord's day today. This is an ordinance that this is a day that is a great foretaste of heaven itself. Love Christ's church, his house on the earth. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Third use, obedience. You're to pray. What's this petition that we are ought to pray? Thy will be done in earth as it is where? In heaven. Right? This presupposes a heavenly affection. Love God, love neighbor on the earth, follow the commandments of God, not to be justified by them, but out of love for God. Oh, in heaven you will find that keeping the commandments of God is your joy, as you find in the 119th Psalm, because the commandments are out of love. And another inducement to obeying God is that those who labor for the cause of Christ will have greater heavenly rewards. I can't touch on that too much today. Yes, there is a well-done, good and faithful servant in store, but some in heaven will shine more brightly than others. Daniel 12.3, And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Does anyone here doubt that Paul, the apostle, will shine more brightly than any here? No doubt. And that should be an inducement for you to labor for the Lord. Fifth use, and finally, perseverance. Persevere by looking unto glory. Verse 7 says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. We are called to persevere with our eyes fixed on heaven. The Christian life calls for perseverance, not for ease. It calls for you to overcome and fight by God's help. And if you suffer today, if you sorrow today, you are to meditate on glory. Remember this truth. Your sufferings are working for you. If you are in in Christ and these are not sufferings for the sake of your own sin, your sufferings are working what? A greater glory to come. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us, this is the part we ignore, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. This is another way some of you will have a greater glory to come. You will suffer more in this life, but the promise is you are laying up, or God is laying up for you a greater glory to come. This is one of his inducements to you to run the race well. Is that, yes, those who serve the Lord will shine brightly. Those who suffered well for the Lord will also shine brightly. And you will say, what was 70 years of this in comparison to an eternity to come? And you are called to suffer well. Isn't this kindness from God? He says, suffer for a few years now, and I am heaping greater and greater and greater glory on you for eternity. So whatever you lose in this world, believer, for the sake of Christ, remember God in heaven. Say, God is the strength of my heart and my what? Portion forever. Can you not suffer the loss of all things in remembrance of that? Well, time is long gone. So let me close with the martyrdom of Christopher Love as we opened with it. He consoled his wife before his beheading with these words. As soon as my head is severed from my body, it shall be united with Christ my head in heaven. 
And I am persuaded that I shall tomorrow go up to Tower Hill as cheerfully to be everlastingly martyred unto my Redeemer as I went to Giles's church to be married to thee. That is how a meditation on heaven draws our affections to where we will live with Christ forever, come what may. That is its greatest use to you today, believer. To have your affections set there and you will say, what can man do to me? All he can do is send me to Jesus. Can you long for heaven like that believer? Please do. And if you do, the testimony of scripture and church history is you will run your race well. And for those such as you, the world is not worthy. The heaven is prepared for you. And God, as we read in Hebrews 11, is not ashamed to be called your God. Praise God for that. May God help us all long for heaven then. Let us pray now and arise, if able, for prayer. O Lord our God, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. O Lord, we have had a small taste of heaven. And may that small taste be like the appetizer that appetizes our hunger for heaven, knowing that we will be there where Jesus is. Help us to run our race well. And if any here are apart from Christ and heaven is not yet their home, may this be the day that they call upon the name of the Lord, that they would be where Christ is forever and ever in this world of love that has no end. We pray, Father, you would make God our portion forever, that we would delight to know that we possess God. Bless thy people now as we depart from this place. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.